You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Take your seats, and if you would, please turn with me in the Bible to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, Matthew 26, and uh, uh, today we are going to, we're going to look at um, portions of Matthew 26 as we kind of follow a story uh, in, uh, this, the, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll be looking at some other scripture as well, but we'll camp out, uh, I'll get you to have your Bibles open for most of the time in Matthew 26. We're in a teaching series right now here at Hope called Encountering Jesus. Encountering Jesus in the final week of his earthly life. And we've been considering events in the, well, in the, the, that week, the week in which Jesus was crucified, the Friday. We, are, we have been looking at what, what has happened, what happened in his life during that last week, starting from Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, today. We are on Wednesday of that week and seeing uh, what it is that the gospel writers would show us, what the Lord would show us as we study the life of Christ in what we call Holy Week, that is the week that Jesus was crucified, and of course the first day of the following week, he rose from the dead. You remember Sunday, the first Palm Sunday, he made that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Then on Monday, he was in the temple, and how he was clearing out the temple. Remember, he had just compassion for the nations that they would be able to come and to meet God. And he was driving out the distractions and the, and the chaos that would be a place where the nations could meet God and to, uh, to seek him in worship. And then Tuesday, the religious leaders confronted him and had it out, that whole issue over authority. And now we're on uh, Wednesday. Now, just to set the context again, it's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Jesus will be crucified. So it's getting really, really close now. And the text we're going to look at, we're, we're going to pick it up in the middle of a meeting where the religious leaders who hated Jesus, they were envious of him. Jesus called them out for their godlessness. They had this appearance of godliness, but they were godless and, and, and hypocritical. And Jesus called them out on it. And large, largely, that's why they hated him. They were jealous of Jesus, envious of him. And they were so hate-filled toward Jesus that they wanted to kill him. And what we're going to read this morning, we're going to pick up our reading in the middle of a meeting where there is kind of like the last plotting meeting to figure out how they're going to put Jesus to death. Now, here's something that's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed this, but did you know that Jesus was crucified one week sooner than his enemies intended? One week sooner than they had intended for Jesus to be crucified, it happened. Now, now we, these religious leaders got together, and they're, they're plotting the death of Jesus. And the big thing that they are concerned about is the crowds of people. You see, Jesus, it shouldn't be a shock to us, the people liked Jesus. I mean, he spoke the truth, and he was kind and compassionate, and he, he spoke with a kind of authority that nobody had ever heard before because he is the authoritative one. And he was, by the masses of people, he was loved and respected, and um, the religious leaders who hated him, I mean, they wanted to kill him, but they knew if we lay hold of him in a public setting, the crowds are going to be upset. They're not going to like this. So, so as they're plotting together, they're like, if we're, we got to do away with him, but we're going to need to, to catch him in a place where there's very few people around, and we can do it sort of quietly and out of the public eye 
so that it will go down without them rising up against us. How are we going to do that? So here's what they decided. They decided, well, we're coming up to a great feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It coincided with Passover. So many, many visitors filled Jerusalem. There was all kinds of people around. So as they got together and plotted on Wednesday of the week that Jesus was crucified, they said, we better wait a week because the festival was a week long. We'll wait a week until it's over and the crowds will go on back to their homes and we'll disperse and then it will be easier to get Jesus and arrest him and figure out how to charge him and get him handed over to Pilate where he can be executed with all all kinds of people getting in the way and intervening. So that was their plan. Notice what it said. It says in verse 3 of Matthew 26, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth, right? If it's a stealth jet, it's one that you don't pick up on radar, right? It's, it's kind of, it can sneak around. They plotted by, to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But, notice verse 5, but they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So what do they not want around when they're trying to get a hold of Jesus? People. So we better wait a week. Now, as you know, as I've just said, this was Wednesday. They say, we're going to wait till the end of next week. But as it turned out, they only had to wait two days. What happened? How, how did... How did they manage to do that? How did they go from saying, well, we won't be able to do it at the end of the next week to being able to, to kill Jesus in two days? What happened? Well, what happened is a man named Judas Iscariot came along and made them an offer they couldn't refuse. Have a look at verse 14. Then one of the 12, and the 12 are Jesus' disciples, his closest disciples, these men who lived with him and traveled with him and served with him. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now we're going to go down to verse 20. This is now on Thursday. When it was evening, he, talked about Jesus, reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. Judas, verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now later still that night, we're going to go down to verse 47. Jesus has spent very important time with his disciples. And now he goes out to his place. I mean by his place, the place that he liked to go. Because it was a quiet place. Very few people around. Of course, it was late at night. He liked to go there. And he would go there and pray. And pour out his heart before his father. And on this night, he was filled with anguish. He went out there with his disciples. And then he took his three closest disciples to go further with him. And he fell down on the ground and cried out to God. You remember the story. The disciples had a hard time staying awake. And he came back to them and would talk to them. And at verse 47, 
we're picking it up here. It says, while he was still speaking, so speaking to the disciples at a hard time staying awake. You know what that's like, right? When you, you got, I got to stay awake, but you just can't. An awkward moment. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So you see what Judas has done? They're looking for a place to arrest Jesus, and the key to arresting him is that there's no what around? No people, right? So Judas goes to them and makes them an offer. He says, I'll get him for you. Because he knew, he knew where Jesus liked to go. And he knew that Jesus would be here. And so he brought them out under the darkness of night in a place where there were no crowds, where they could do what they were plotting to do. And that's how they were able to kill Jesus a week before they planned. Because Judas made it possible. It says in verse, verse 48, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. Not abnormal for a kiss to be given in a setting where two people are meeting in antiquity, especially where one respects another. But you can imagine it's the darkness of night. How will we recognize him? There's not enough big mag nights we can pull out and have cell phones to fire up the flashlight. How will we recognize him? It's the one I'll kiss. And so it says, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss as the man sees him. Verse 49, I mean, he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Now, here's my question this morning. What happened to Judas Iscariot? Like, what happened? How did we get here? How did someone who was so close to Jesus end up so far away from him? Like, I mean, think about it. He spent two, three years with Jesus, heard him teach, heard all the sermons of Jesus, bore witness to the miracles of Jesus, and spent time with them personally. He could, he could bear witness to the authenticity of Jesus. He was close to him with a kind of closeness that very few in his day experienced, save 11 others. And yet here we are in this place, in this moment, where this man who's experienced his love and witnessed his glory so decisively turns away from him. How is this possible? What happened to Judas Iscariot? And I mean, understanding what happened to Judas is one thing, but what we really actually want to know is what happened to your dear friend who once loved the Lord, or said they did, but now don't. What happened to the sibling who you grew up in church together, but they've walked away from the faith? What, what happened to the Sunday school teacher who's abandoned Christ to that man, to that woman who you did missions with, who you served with, who you prayed with, who you worshipped alongside, but today are far from him and deny him and maybe even dismiss those past experiences as some kind of naivete or the folly of their youth. Or what happened to the church elder or to the church pastor who's, who was a primary leader, maybe even had a prominent public ministry, but now lives in rebellion and defiance against God. What happened to Judas? That's a question of curiosity. But what happened to that person who seemed to follow Jesus but now is far from him? That's a, that's a question that 
that cuts us deeply and personally. What do we say to that? Well, we may not be able to answer the question exhaustively today. But I want to show you some important clues that we find in the story of Judas and his betrayal that I think give us insight into how it is a person can appear so close to Jesus and yet be so far away. And I would suggest there's at least three factors that led to the fall of Judas that are also at work in the lives of those who reject Jesus even after appearing or professing to have known him. The broad umbrella I'll put up for this sermon is what keeps people from following Christ? Number one, the passions of the flesh. The passions of the flesh. When I talk about the passions of the flesh, I'm talking about sinful desires that compel us to pursue and to do what we want over and against what God wants. It's an inward desire. Paul uses this term in Ephesians 2, verse 3. Why don't you see this verse? He says, we all once, talking about to believers about their life before they knew Jesus, we all once lived in the, see that phrase, passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. Now, like I'm no, I'm no scholar. I think body, though, is a poor translation here. It's the same word, flesh, same word. Carrying out the desires of the flesh. So at one time, we lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our flesh. What we want over and against what God wants. And so we're carrying out the desires of the, of the body or the flesh and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath. So we didn't know God. We were enemies of God. And we were quite okay with it. Yes, indeed. You might look back and recall that there is an emptiness there. Maybe a, a longing. Maybe a sense that you're missing something. But in the day-to-day, we're going forward compelled by desires in our hearts called the passions of the flesh. And uh, the the, the fact is, we've got all kinds of desires. Of course, lots of our desires, they're not sinful in and of themselves. Food, sleep, sex, in and of themselves are not sinful desires. But the, the the passions of the flesh have to do with pursuing after desires that that are over and against what God wants, that can be even pursued apart from God, And also includes avoiding doing what God loves. It has to do with those things that I desire more than God. The things that I love more than God. Let me ask you this. What did Judas Iscariot, based on what we've read here today, what did he desire more than God? I'll give you a hint. Starts with the letter M, ends with a Y, rhymes with honey. What did he like? Money. He loved money more than God. You say, how do you know that? Look back at the text. Back at verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests, verse 15, and said, what will you give me? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? You see? There's Jesus, and there's money, and all it can buy, all the stuff that it can acquire, and all the accolades and the way people look at you when you have it. That was worth more to him than Jesus. Why is it? Why? The passions of the flesh. The sinful desires from his own heart. 
This isn't an isolated incident, too. We're given other clues in, in the Scripture. For example, in John chapter 12, I won't ask you to turn there. You can if you want. But, I, but in John chapter 12, he tells a very interesting story. John tells an interesting story about really a beautiful occasion that went weird. It was a beautiful occasion because Jesus was at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They were siblings. You might recognize the name Lazarus because John tells the amazing story in John chapter 11 of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so then, just like we probably would, right, we would probably have a party celebrating. You have a birthday party? What kind of a party do you think you have when you've been raised from the dead? It's like, I mean, you got to do more than cake and candles, I'm telling you that. So they had Jesus over, and they're having a party. And here is, here is uh, Lazarus' sister, Mary, so moved with adoration and affection for Jesus that she took this very expensive jar of perfume, she broke it open, and she poured it out on Jesus as an act of love and worship. And the fragrance filled the room. It's a precious moment, saying just like, Jesus, you're worth more than anything in all the world. The most precious thing I have, you're more th- worth more than that. Now, it was a beautiful moment, but then it got weird because Judas got angry. And John tells us in John 12, I'm going to put it on the screen here. Oh, it is on the screen. Look at that. Thank you. Here's what Judas said in this moment. Like, you'd like to think, you'd like to think, he'd say, you know what, what, a, what a, a fitting act of worship. This one who raises the dead, he is worth more than money could buy, isn't he? That's not what Judas said. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? See, the passions of flesh can come off sounding very pious and very charitable even. But John says this. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So why was he angry? That could be mine. I want that. You see, this is the passions of the flesh. Judas loved money. And he loved the stuff it could buy him and the power it provided him and the pleasure it afforded him and what people thought of him because he had it. And he was governed by the passions of his flesh. It's this powerful force that makes Jesus unattractive. Because when we're, when we're driven by the passions of our flesh, we perceive Jesus to be a threat getting in between me and that which I truly love. It's sort of like this. It's like if you're, if, you're, uh, if, you got, if you're a parent with children or a grandparent, you got your kids, you're, you're at someone's home and they're having a great time. Having a great time. And all of a sudden, you come along and you say to them, kids, it's time to go. And all of a sudden, you, this parent, you feed them, you clothe them, you educate them, you transport them all around, you love them, you nurse them, you, you, you give everything for them. Grandparents are even better because they're all that stuff, but less rules. You are, I mean, you're, you're a gift from God to this little precious person. And all you're doing is saying, it's time to go home. Kids, it's time to go home. And what happens? All of a sudden, that little person turns into a little devil. And they turn to you. They don't want to go home. And they get all mad. And they even change color sometimes. Oh, I'm having a great time. You know, it's not fair. Why? Because you are getting in the, you are taking them away from that which they are really enjoying. I don't want to go. I want to stay here and do this. Now, that's your children and that. <laughs> we trust the Lord they'll grow past that. 
or find ways to mask it. But the spiritual reality is very real. This is what keeps people from Jesus. Is that Jesus is all well and good, but my true love is, and he comes along, and in Judas's case, he comes along and presents himself as worth more than money. In fact, would call to lay down everything. And Judas says, in his heart, says, no, no, no. You're not getting in between me and what I really want. That's what keeps people, that's what keeps people from Jesus. It's the passions of the flesh. Second, the love of the world. The love of the world. Now, by the world, I don't mean the people. We're called to love people. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, we're not talking about, don't mean the people in the world. I mean the world in the sense that the collective thinking and way of living that's not submitted to God. When we think about the world and worldliness in Scripture, we're often talking about that life that's lived in pursuit of the world's priorities and seeking satisfaction from what the world offers instead of what God offers himself. John the Apostle takes us up in, uh, in 1 John chapter 2, and he says this, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. See, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's just that the things in the world are not the issue. It's loving them. Love them. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. See, God calls us to love him first. Remember the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. We're called to love him firstly. We're called to love him truly, over and above all other things. Him first. And um, the thing that may surprise you is that God is not okay with you having rival lovers. Shouldn't surprise you. I mean, just ask your spouse, how, how would you feel if I loved another man, another woman? They'd say, well, it depends what you mean by love. Well, the way that I love you. You have a very pretty tough afternoon, I think, if you raise that question. Why do you think, dear friend, that God is cool with you running around on him? So many people live their lives doing what I call the spiritual splits. Got one part of my heart loving the world and desiring the things of the world. But I can see and perceive that there's, there may indeed be some truth to this God thing and there's some greater glory there and there's even some terrific people there. So I kind of got one foot over here. And spiritually speaking, it's getting painful. Because your heart is divided. That's not the Christian life. That's Judas Iscariot. John says, do not love the world. John knew Judas. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life, it is not from the Father, but is from the world when I love the world, I'm desiring what I don't have and I'm filled with pride by what I do have. One pastor put it this way, talk about loving the world. He said this, this is what keeps us from loving God and loving each other. We love stuff. And when we don't have it, we crave it. And when we do have it, we love to talk about it incessantly and waste time on it. And where is God in all that? At best, he is there as a cosmic sugar daddy. 
We may even thank him for all our stuff, but it's a kind of gratitude that proves that the gift and not the giver is our God. Jesus talked about this. You've heard Jesus tell the story about the sower who goes out to sow the seed. And he, he talks about the different kinds of soil and ground that the seed lands on as different kinds of people. And one place that the seed fell, one kind of person, is represented by soil that had lots of weeds and thorns and thistles in it. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew, about, in Matthew 13, 22. As for what is sown among the thorns, he's talking about a person. As for what is sown among the thorns, the word of God gets sown there. This is the one who hears the word, but notice, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfaithful. That's Judas. That's Judas. I heard the word, maybe even appeared to receive it, maybe even appeared to like it. But as way leads on the way, begin to weigh the pros and the cons, The cares of this world and all that's around this love of the world begins to choke out the word of God and the truth. There's a guy named Demas, D-E-M-A-S, that we meet in Scripture. We first meet him, he's serving alongside the Apostle Paul in mission. But when we last hear of him in Scripture, this is what Paul says. Demas, notice Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me just like Judas. See, the Bible tells us that we can anticipate this kind of thing will happen. Trying to help you to understand not only what happened to Judas, maybe what happened to that person that your heart is broken. Maybe even, maybe, what's happening to some of you. What keeps you from following Jesus? Well, maybe the same thing that keeps many people from following him, the passions of the flesh, love of the world. Judas did not get excited about the kingdom of God because he could not fathom the worth of Jesus and his message being greater than him having more. And that same impulse keeps many people from following Christ. What keeps people from Christ? The passions of the flesh. Love of the world. Thirdly, the power of the enemy. The power of the enemy. What keeps people from Christ? The flesh, the world, and the devil. The devil played a a prominent role in the fall of Judas. The devil did in Judas what he does in many other people. Is he goes to work on the passions of our flesh making us more passionate about them, attacking us in the place where we're given over to our own selfish desires. Let me show you what I mean. I'm going to have you turn to one more place. Go ahead to the Gospel of John. We're in Matthew. Next book is Mark, Luke, and then John. Head over to John. Look for chapter 13. I'm not going to get you to turn anywhere else in your Bible, So, unless you want to. You don't have to keep your finger anywhere. John chapter 13. And we're back on, now it's Thursday night, in what we call the Last Supper. Jesus is there with his disciples. He's going to spend, again, significant time with his disciples teaching them. Judas is going to be gone for most of this. But at this point in time, Judas is still there. And I want you to see what John says took place. John 13, verse 21. Thinking about the power of the enemy. Notice what happens. 
After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I'm in verse 21, John 13. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So imagine at your home, you got some pita bread, tear off a piece of that pita bread, dip it in the dish. That's what Jesus is doing. Some tasty sauce here. So it says, verse 26, when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27, notice. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Satan entered into him. What does that mean? Satan entered into him. Was he, was he possessed? Was it some kind of demonic trance? No, I, I think probably most accurately, what we're seeing here is we see a man who's given over to the passions of the flesh, in love with the world, and Satan comes along, and in entering in here, he leverages that. He like seals the deal. And in this moment, he pushes him forward down this deadly, sinful, grievous path. The devil exerts his power on our passions, the passions of the flesh. Let me go back to Ephesians 2 to help you to see this. Ephesians 2, on the screen here. Paul again talking about our life before we knew Jesus. Notice. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we were, we were dead men walking. You were dead, but you weren't like dead like no pulse dead. You, were, you looked alive, but you were walking in deadness apart from God. Notice, following the prince of the power of the air. Well, who's that? That's the devil. Why would we follow the devil? I mean, even ask somebody who doesn't, not into church, not into Jesus, even if you ask them, just suppose you even believe that the devil was real, would you want to follow him? Now, some people will make light of it, make jokes, but most people, if they have an honest moment on their question, would say, no, I wouldn't want to follow the devil. So why is it that people do? Well, our condition, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Because the devil's at work there. Not saying, come with me and do evil. No, he's saying, pursue your passions. There's greater satisfaction, greater pleasure, greater delight found elsewhere. We heard that in Chloe's testimony, right? That wrestling match in her life of looking for happiness, looking for fulfillment, looking for satisfaction. And praise God, she came to a place of seeing it's not out there. It's in here in Jesus. But the devil works. He's got power to persuade you to keep going down there. Just keep going down the hole. Keep going down the hole. There'll be pleasure yet. There's not. There's not. What happened to Judas? Judas was sinfully indulgent and Satan went to work. It's like in hockey, we're getting close to playoff time. They start talking about upper body injuries, lower body injuries, because they don't want their enemy to know their vulnerability. Well, you can talk about injuries or whatever vicinity of your body you want, but the devil knows your vulnerabilities. 
and he goes to work on them, which is why we need Jesus, because he's stronger than the devil. He saves us from him. The unregenerate person, though, I want you to see, the unregenerate person does not wish he could walk in holiness. They may want a life to be better. They may want greater joy. They may know that there's some kind of emptiness in their heart, but they're not wishing they could honor God, worship Christ, or live in purity for his glory. No, they have passions for other things. And Satan works on those passions to keep people imprisoned. But praise God, there's a Savior. I mean, think about this picture here. <laughs> I mean, we've got, we've got this trifecta of hell in our lives. Passions of the flesh, love of the world, and an enemy who's bigger and stronger than us. <laughs> I can't change my heart. Okay. I am I, defenseless against these outside influences on my sinful heart. And I got an enemy who I'm no match for him. I desperately, desperately need something. Someone. A savior. And praise God, that's Jesus. See, Jesus is for you, just like a couple of police officers were for two men in an elevator in Toronto a few years ago. Back in 2018, the summer, August of 2018, there was a torrential rainfall in downtown Toronto. And uh, the rain fell so fast, so rapidly in such a short period of time that, um, that there, was, there was flooding happening in the streets. And these two men worked in a, an office building in Toronto and they heard that the parking garage was filling up with water and starting to flood. And just like any man, they think, forget me, save my car. And so they went down Right, They went down into the parking garage. I get it. I understand. They went down to the parking garage to try to get their cars out of there before they're totally submerged in water. Only thing is, you know how sometimes like when the pressure's on, you don't always think it all the way through? These guys, instead of taking the stairs down, they got in the elevator and went down. And they took the elevator down. Of course, the elevator got to the bottom and submerged into the water that was filling up. And as it hit the ground, the water started to pour in the elevator. And the water pouring in the elevator shorted out all the electrical circuits so the buttons didn't work and the doors wouldn't open. So then they hit the button for the emergency, you know, the, phone, the little phone there, the lifeline that's in the elevator, they hit that. That was all well and good until the water submerged the speakers and they couldn't get any help. So then, then they're just like, no problem, we've got cell phones. They pull out their cell phones, but down in the basement of this building in the elevator, their cell phones didn't work. And the water is filling up and coming up to their chests and up to their, their chins. So they get up on the railings in the elevator and they can see the water keeps coming and coming. Now they're getting really desperate. Panic sets in and they go all UFC on the roof of the ceiling of the elevator trying to punch a hole through it to see if they get out. Eventually, as the water's coming up and coming up their chest, one of them manages to, to, to uh, punch a hole in the ceiling of the elevator big enough that he could stick his hand up with his cell phone through it. And as soon as he stuck his hand up with a cell phone through it, he got bars on his cell phone. And so there, standing on the rail with water coming up, and they're trying to keep above water. He's dialing 911 saying, help, help us. Some police officers were nearby, and they got the call, and they went to the parking garage. They swam over to the elevator with a crowbar. The crowbar was too long. It didn't work. They go back. They swim back to the cars, get another crowbar. It's filling up. They're now... They come back with a shorter crowbar. They wedge it in there, and praise God... They were able to wedge the door open, shove the door open, and get these men out at the last minute. That is you and me spiritually. We're stuck 
and we need a Savior. But praise God, there is a Savior. And you need only to cry out to him with that little cell phone of faith. Punch a hole through the roof of your hardened heart. Say, Jesus, save me. And he will. You say, how will he do that? Because Jesus gives you what the Bible calls, what Jesus calls new birth. That passions of the flesh that you wrestle with. When he comes in your life, he gives you a new heart that begins to desire things that he desires. The world, oh, the world's still there. But he opens your eyes to see the true worth of him compared to those other things. The devil, the devil is the defeated foe when you come to Jesus. In fact, the Bible says there's coming a day and we're one day sooner when he will crush him underneath your feet. He's a defeated foe. I want you to see that Jesus is a great savior and you and I need saving. That is something that Judas Iscariot never admitted and never saw. He felt badly for what he did. In fact, so badly that he went back to those religious leaders and told them, I've done a terrible thing. And he took the money that he had been paid and he threw it at their feet. And then he went and he killed himself. What Judas didn't see is that the issue is not feeling bad about what you've done. The issue is crying out to a savior for what you need. And I hate to tell you this, but I see no evidence in scripture that Judas ever did that. But your story can be different. And for many of you, your story is different. Before I close, I want to leave you with three things. Just some pastoral exhortations. I'm calling them responses. When you consider what we see about Judas here, the first thing I want to just tell you as I close is, loved ones, hate fakery. You know what I mean by fakery? I think it's a word. I'm not sure. But it works today. Hate fakeness. We should hate every form of fakery in our lives. Duplicity, hypocrisy, pretending. Don't allow yourself to get comfortable pretending. Don't just go through the motions. We should hate every form of fakery in our lives. I'm not pretending. I'm not playing games. This is life. And eternity is coming. Hate fakery. When you see fakeness in your life, say, get away from me. Make a retching sound if that helps. Ask God to help you be real. Judas never did. Hate fakery. Number two, have faith in God. Have faith in God. We must believe in the power of God to save. Because he can save. He can, and he does. He can give you victory over your flesh. He defeats the enemy. He gives us eyes to see. You know, the devil keeps unbelievers blind, but God enters in. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 and 6, God who said, let light shine in darkness has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? He opened my eyes. He'll open your eyes too. Jesus saves. 
Jesus saves. Have faith in God. He can save you, and he will save you. Believe in the power of God to save. Believe in the providence of God over evil. Believe in the providence of God over evil. Don't get doubting God because of unfaithful people. God is not unfaithful. People are unfaithful. People will let you down. They will. You say, well, they haven't yet. They will. Pastors will let you down. So many people, a a, a well-known Christian author, a beloved Christian speaker, someone with a powerful ministry, falls away. And your faith, I understand, your faith gets, it's a real blow because you were so encouraged by them and you're rocked by it. But you, you cannot let it rattle your faith because the call of scripture is not to put your trust in people because people can't save, but God can. Have faith in God. The truth of Jesus and who he is and what he's done is true every day, all day, no matter what people do. So have faith in God. You, you also, you, you got to have faith in his providence over evil. You got to have a category in your mind where you recognize that God is sovereign over evil and sin, even to the extent which, when, when that which he abhors serves his purposes. Like, think about it. What Judas does here is wicked. It's a great sin. And yet God in his providence uses that as part of the means by which he will secure our salvation. you got to have a category in your mind, loved ones, for a God who rules over everything, even when things look totally unruled. Because he does rule, and he works in mysterious ways. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Finally, hold to a biblical understanding of conversion. Hold to a biblical understanding of conversion. We need to have a biblical understanding of what it is to be saved and how a person gets there. Having a saving relationship with Jesus is not adopting a new religion. It's not taking on a new belief system. It's not a vow to be different or to be better. It's a God thing. And it happens when you repent and believe. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Being converted, being saved requires repentance, which which means that I admit I'm the problem. I have sinned. Repentance, it's a heartfelt sorrow for sin that leads to change. It's It's not feeling bad. Repentance isn't, sorry, I got caught, Sorry how this makes me look. Sorry how this makes me feel. It's not any of that. No, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin that, that leads to change, that, that, that leads to, to, that is faith. Admitting, agreeing with the Lord what he says, and then the flip side of it is faith. Conversion requires repentance and then believing on Jesus, that not only do I have a sin problem, but there's a Savior right here who can deal with my sin problem. I must repent. And I must believe. Understand, friends, that I'm not saved just because I have Christian friends. I'm not going to heaven just because my parents are going to heaven. Being a Christian is not a matter of some kind of social change in my life. 
it's, it's not like going to the salon or going to Moore's or going to the gym. Go to the salon for a different look. Go to Moore's and come out looking like a million bucks. I go to the gym to deal with this. And there's a change. You say, oh, you've done something with yourself. Hey, I like that suit. You're looking sharp today. But that's all external. Judas was all external. But what does Jesus say? Repent and believe the gospel. I need saving. Repentance. Jesus is the Savior. Believing. Have you done that? Are you doing that? I want to give you an opportunity right now to do that. In fact, I'm going to pray right now a prayer which will lead you in a prayer of repentance and belief. This could be an opportunity for you right now to renew a commitment that's already there. But hearing the gospel this morning encourages you to just keep leaning on Jesus. And you'll pray along with me in full faith, even in thanksgiving. But perhaps you're watching online right now, or you're up in the balcony, or you're here in this room, or even listening to a podcast. And for you, you are seeing today, maybe like you've never seen before, that you need a Savior, and Jesus is it. For you, I'd like you to pray along with me if you're ready to take that step. Father in heaven, I admit that I desperately need to be saved. I acknowledge that I need a savior. And I believe that Jesus is that savior that I need. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you today, being as sincere as I know how, that you would come and save me. That you'd do for me what I desperately need. I know enough to know that I got lots to learn, but I believe that you can, and I'm trusting you to do it. And so I'm asking you to do it now. I thank you that you indeed did die for me and that you've rose from the dead and that in you I can have victory in its greatest meaning forever. So would you come and rescue me now? In Jesus' name, amen.